Welcome to Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. Up until this week, I'd lived in a bubble. I lived in a bubble because I work for many wonderful, empowering women. I work in mostly a female workplace at Real Simple. And workplace sexual harassment and sexism is thankfully something I haven't really had to come into contact with. But this week I was doing some research and I found that over the past 15 years, the number of sexual harassment complaints filed with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, has held steady between around 7,000 and 9,000, which doesn't even take into account the unreported cases. According to a different survey conducted by Cosmopolitan last year, one in four women report being sexually harassed at work. And we know that women are earning less than men. We know that pregnant women are looked at unfavorably in the workplace. We know that women are less likely to negotiate than men. So given all of these kind of harrowing statistics, I was really excited when a book hit my desk called Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. And the author Jessica Bennett is joining me today to discuss some of those statistics as well as some really kind of disturbing and surprising stories I heard from my own friends about dealing with sexism and sexual harassment in their offices. Jessica is an award-winning journalist and critic. She writes about women, sexuality, and culture. She's a columnist at the New York Times and a former columnist for TimingSiteTime.com. She's also a contributing editor for Sheryl Sandberg's nonprofit, LeanIn.org, where she's the co-founder and curator of the Lean In Collection, a photo partnership with Getty Images to change the way women are depicted in stock photography. So welcome, Jessica, and thank you so much for joining us all the way from the West Coast today. Thanks for having me. So like I said, I feel like your book kind of popped a bubble because it opened up a lot of conversations for me to have with friends, colleagues, coworkers about sexism and sexual harassment and subtle things that are happening to young women, older women, women in general in the workplace that I had no idea. Because as you know, I work for a woman who is like girl power all the way and is all about empowering women. So your book totally opened my eyes. And I wanted to first start by talking about what is the Fight Club. So the book is called Feminist Fight Club. Can you tell people who haven't read it or who don't know what the Fight Club is? Yeah. So the Fight Club is is real. (laughs) I'm in a feminist fight club. And it's a group of women who have been meeting since we all began our careers in New York City about a decade ago. And the rule was we fought patriarchy, not each other. We weren't actually fighting. Right. The reason we started meeting was because in our respective fields and our respective careers, and a lot of us were in creative fields, we were comedians and writers and filmmakers and producers, we were in these very white male-dominated environments. And more than that, we were butting up against this very subtle form of sexism, which we didn't even necessarily realize or identify as sexism from the start, but we noticed that we weren't getting ahead as quickly as the men around us. Our ideas wouldn't be taken as seriously. You know, sometimes we'd pitch an idea and it would get rejected and then end up in the pages of the magazine under a man's byline. All of these sort of small things that taken individually might not seem like that big a deal, but over time they really added up. And so we began meeting monthly and we still do. And it's essentially a group to support one another and share what we learn and tricks of the trade for how to overcome some of this stuff. 
So what I love about it is that it's a group of women. And I think a buzzword, especially for young women and just in the workplace today, is finding a mentor. But you talk about finding a board of directors, finding a lot of women who can be honest with each other about you know, inappropriate contact from bosses who can be honest about what they're making, which is something no one wants to talk about, who can be honest about problems and successes. And can you talk a little bit about that board of director idea? Yeah. So a friend alerted me to this term. She calls it a PBOD. It's Mm -hmm. a personal board of directors. And like you said, you know, we hear so much about mentorship and finding a sponsor these days. And I've always found it a little bit overwhelming to think I need to immediately find some perfect person who's going to mentor me throughout my career. And I've had a few people who've helped in a few different ways, but more than that, I've had this vast network of people who have all contributed. And so I like to think of it as my personal board, and there's men on the board too. And it's essentially a group of people. They don't have to apply for the position, but they're sort of, they know that we have this relationship and they advise on different career decisions I may need to make. And they're in different fields. So I don't necessarily go to the same person for every single question. And it's pretty informal, but we have a relationship where we we sort of understand and know that we both provide advice for each other. So it's very much a give and take rather than having to find one all-encompassing mentor. And so the Fight Club for me has acted as that, but I also have those groups and those pockets in in every aspect of my life. Your book is, I mean, it truly is a manual. It covers everything from negotiating to the different types of men that you encounter in the workplace, like the man interrupter, the mansplainer, the bro appropriator, and then the different types of female stereotypes and, you know, how to speak. What was it? It's like how to speak while female. I mean, it covers <laughs> so much. It even has an alphabet of female stereotypes and, and how they're just bullshit. So I didn't even know where to start. But the first thing I wanted to talk about is the line between being young and being a woman, which came up a lot when I talked to my friends in that someone I was just talking to her last night and she said, you know, one of the men who led my team always wanted me to go get his sweater. Like he was always sending me to go get his sweater from his office when we were sitting in a in a meeting. And she said, and I didn't know and I have trouble knowing when I'm working with these older men if they're treating me a way because I'm young or because I'm a young woman or just because I'm a woman. So can you talk a little bit about navigating that line? Because I I know a lot of the listeners to this show are on their first, maybe second job and and navigating that line as well. Right. So, you know, a lot of the things in the book and what I tried to do was only reference things that were statistically provable. Right. So, For example, the idea of having to go fetch somebody's sweater, that falls under a couple of categories. One that I call the office mom, who's a person, a woman who tends to take on all of these sort of motherly tasks. And another in a different section called the stenographer, which is the man who asks the woman in the room to take the notes or grab the coffee or do the low level work. And, and these things are real. The the mother load of office administrative tasks does fall to women and it falls further to women of color. Like that's statistically proven. And it's also proven that women are more likely to offer to do these things. Right. So while taking into account this happens and how to overcome it, I think that you raise a very important point about 
age and gender, because in some cases you really are the assistant or you really are just starting your career and somebody is going to be asked to do this. And it happens to be you because you're the lowest person on the totem pole there. So, you know, I wouldn't advise immediately refusing to do this stuff if it's your job to do it. Mm -hmm. That said, is there a man next to you that's not getting asked? I think that was her idea because I know she's not an assistant. Like she's she's an associate at this okay, um, got it. company. And I think she was like, it just seems like an unnecessary task in general that someone should have to go get this guy's sweater. Like either he should go get his own or just remember to bring it to meetings because, you know, meetings are cold. Like right, there should exactly. be some, some other solution. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different tactics. And throughout the book, for all of these scenarios, I try to provide fight moves, as I call them, for yes. how to overcome them. And the fight moves, since we're, I'm trying to speak to everyone, but obviously not every situation is <laughs> applicable to everyone. Right. I try to give sort of the funny response and the direct response and then the strategic response. So there's a few in this scenario. I have a friend who frequently gets asked to to grab coffee and she has a line and she says, you know, I actually don't know how to, to make coffee. My mom never taught me because she told me that I'd always end up getting it for male bosses. <laughs> and it's sort of a snarky approach and she uses it when she knows it will go over well. Um, but she replies with snark. I think there's also the direct approach. You know, I don't think the optics of asking the only woman in this room to go grab your sweater are very good. Yeah. Um, there's the, hey, Josh over here, he's like really great at doing these kinds of tasks. Let's ask Josh to do it. Yeah. Um, throw it, which I call throwing to a bro. But, you know, in all seriousness, she could say something and take him aside. She could say, you have an administrative assistant right here. Do you mind if that person does this? I need to be focusing on X, Y, and Z. Like, I think that in many cases, it actually is worth just addressing the issue. And a lot of this stuff is very unconscious. And maybe he doesn't even realize he's doing it. And I think that's a really important point when talking about the sexism of our generation, which is not even necessarily overt sexism. I mean, when you're talking about issues of sexual harassment, yes, that is very overt. And that has a legal definition. But things like interruptions or taking an idea or asking a woman to do the administrative tasks, these are really unconscious things and they're biases, more so even than overt sexism. And sometimes women possess them too. Right. And speaking of of the subtle subtle idea of sexism, which in my in my mind, it seems not more dangerous, but it seems like it trips us up a little bit more because it's it's so much more difficult to define. Like, is he interrupting me because he really has something better to say? Or is it because I'm a woman? Like, it just leads you to question a lot of things like it could it could leave you spinning in your mind all day. And I'm wondering how you think that affects young people's or women's ability to do good work, like dealing right. with all these like little tiny, I think you have the undermine her as one of the male mm -hmm. enemies as well. Like dealing with all of this tiny, subtle signs that we all have to be responsible for watching out for could drive a person totally crazy. Right. And there were certainly points when I was writing this book where I was like, literally, if you had to think about all of this stuff at once, like you, your brain would explode. It's impossible. Right. Um, but you know, I had this really interesting conversation with Gail Collins, the columnist at the New York Times once, and we were talking about her book that looked at the history of the women's movement. And she was talking about 
the difference between sexism of her generation and mine. And she said something to the effect of, you know, sexism of her generation was certainly much worse. You know, things like help wanted ads were segregated by gender. And, you know, I began my career at Newsweek and at Newsweek, you, the women were told women are not allowed to write here. That was just standard. And you were allowed to say that and get away with it. So it was worse, but at least you knew it when you saw it. It was very overt. You knew exactly what it was. And I think for our generation, like you said, it's not overt. It's very subtle. It flies under the radar. And so it's very easy to turn inward and think, you know, is this just me or is this a larger issue? And I know that for me, the thing that allowed me to see it as a larger issue was talking with other women who are also experiencing it because mm -hmm. suddenly they were describing the same scenarios, the same situations. And we could realize kind of jointly that this was perhaps a collective problem and a systemic problem, not just an individual one. So that was, you know, I talk a lot about the power of the fight club for me, but that was one of the huge things we all kind of came to this realization simultaneously that, Oh my God, we're all experiencing the experiencing these things like this can't just be us individually. This must be something larger. Right. And like I said, I reached out to so many friends and was so surprised about what goes on in workplaces. One that I wanted to bring up to you was the bro appropriator is someone who takes your ideas, right, and kind of takes credit for them. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine said that she worked with two men on a project and they all had to brainstorm a theme together. And she came up with the idea to do, use a baseball theme. But these two men turned around and took credit for the idea as their own and pitched it to their bosses as their idea. And she actually approached them and said that she that was very frustrating to her. But they responded and said, it didn't seem realistic that a girl would come up with an idea related to sports. How do you wow. what, how do you respond to that? I responded to that with I was shocked. I, I just can't believe that this stuff really happens only because I I'm in such a bubble. <laughs> I mean, I think my response to that would have been fuck you. Honestly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't know that these guys positions like were they in charge of her? Were they her? It sounds like they were peers. a team. I That's what it sounds like to me. Maybe they were a little above, but it sounds like they were supposed to collaborate as a team. I mean, in that case, like I truly think that a direct approach being like, what I need you to assess what just came out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> it's sexist and it's ridiculous. And like, screw you go, go correct this problem right now mm -hmm. could be effective. And I, and I just simply wouldn't have the patience for that. And that is a very, sounds like a very overt example of this. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's not as overt. A lot of times it, you don't even find out until later until somebody, you realize that somebody has taken credit for the idea you came up with and it appears somewhere else. So, you know, again, that stuff is statistically proven. Ideas are more likely to be attributed to men. So there's the, there's the idea of the man actually actively and maliciously taking credit. But there is also this concept that we infer that good ideas come from men. So even in mixed group settings where there's men and women, what studies have shown is that the good ideas we automatically attribute to the men and men and women do this. So there's all these very subtle things that are causing us to believe that the men came up with the good ideas. And so we have to, I think, be very vigilant in how to deal with that. And sometimes that's as simple as, you know, calling attention back to the person who came up with the idea. I loved that when Jess said it. Or, you know, I've done 
the thing where I will CC the higher ups when I pitch an idea over oh, email. Yeah. That's the move. The, <laughs> just, CC, the CC box or the BCC box are yes. your best friends. Yes, just so they can see where the idea originated and nobody can take credit for it. Yeah. And in other cases, I think that I don't think that most people know and most men know that we are more likely to attribute ideas to them. So maybe they repeat your idea because they think it's a great idea, but then they get credit for it. So sometimes just simply saying to somebody, hey, look, like, here's the thing. I need to get credit for my ideas to rise up in this workplace. And that frequently does not happen. And you can even like throw a statistic at the Mm -hmm. person. And it would be really, it is very important to me that I do get credit. And like, can you please make sure that they know this idea originated with me? I would really appreciate that. Or however you want to phrase it, however is most effective for your specific situation. But there are these tiny things that we can do to solve for these problems. And I guess in her situation, like that guy just sounds like a dick. Yeah, he really does. But I do like your and you make this point in the book. I do like the the idea that something simple that all of us can do is work to lift up the other women in our office. When a woman has a good idea in a meeting to v- be very vocal about your support or agreement to make sure that if, you know, Sue had an idea to say, oh, I loved Sue's idea about this to make sure that that you're doing your part to kind of support and advocate for the other women in your office, especially if you're the more, you know, if you've read this book, you are a card carrying member of the fight club. So you have to be supportive. (laughs) You have a duty. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And these things are really simple. It can be as, as easy as dropping a name. And especially if, you know, if you're a person in a higher position, like your opinion probably counts for a lot. So simply throwing credit to the person that it came from does no harm. And in fact, it makes you look good because you look selfless and like you're supporting the rest of the team. And it makes the person look good that came up with the idea. Absolutely. Now, your book doesn't hold women not accountable at all. You also have a section called Know Thyself where you talk about, you know, women can, like you said, volunteer for the bulk of the secretary-esque work or the kind of housekeeping work, or they might, you know, not be able to brag or apologize too much, not want to take credit, things like that, you know, be a doormat, I believe is one of the categories. And and this reminded me of a story I got from a friend who said that she was asked to go to lunch with her female supervisor and a few other men with a visiting professional who was really important. And her female supervisor was really excited to meet him. And they got to the lunch and these three male coworkers were also very big fans of this professional and he suggested that they go around the table and take turns asking him questions of which she says I roll and she thought that this would give everyone a fair chance to speak but she said that she and her female supervisor did not get one word in the entire time the male coworkers used their turns to talk about themselves and their work and the female supervisor tried to interject her opinion now and then but they cut her off and continued to dominate the conversation. The professional, visiting professional, did nothing to include them. And, you know, even though she was in a higher up position, it kind of put them all in an awkward position because it was just kind of a boys club and they were sitting in on this conversation. And while it does seem like those men are at fault, there is something to me that we get interrupted and we step back. You know, we don't, you know, we get we don't get our chance to voice our opinion at lunch and we just kind of sit back and and eat our sushi. So mm-hmm. how do you respond to that situation in terms of the responsibility on the woman to assert herself and and 
fight back in a way, the fight moves right. for this situation. Right. I mean, you know, it's shitty because we shouldn't have to fight our way into a conversation. Right. You shouldn't and have so, to fight to talk at a lunch that you were invited to. <laughs> that aside. <laughs> and so it can be exhausting. And so with all of this stuff, you know, the idea of female self-sabotage, I think it's very real, but I also think it comes from a place of patriarchal culture and being told for years and years and years that our opinions don't matter. So like this is learned behavior. Like women aren't born with this. And so while there are things that we can do to correct them, I'm very wary of putting the onus on women to have to do all of this stuff. Right. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's like, this is exhausting. You know, you shouldn't have to fight your way into a conversation. You shouldn't have to smile when you ask for a raise. And there's research to support that that will be more effective if you're a woman. But I guess my feeling for right now at the place we are in time is if it's going to help you get ahead and if it can work towards the larger goal of more women in power, and once you're there, you bring other women up with you, which has benefits for it, basically everything, women, men, businesses, then it is your duty to do it. Like you are fighting your way into that conversation, not just for you, but for the the common good and to show that women do have a voice. So, you know, in that specific situation, it's tough. It's like you're at this lunch. You don't want to make the lunch awkward. Certainly, I'm not sure if I would have interjected. I may have just sort of sunken into the background and ate my sushi as well. It's easier. And how do you interject without looking like you're interjecting. But I guess there's this concept in the book called having a boast bitch. And the idea is it's related to boasting and bragging, but I think it can be applied to a lot. And it's essentially like having a wing woman. So a boast bitch is a person who boasts on your behalf because when women brag, they're viewed as unlikable. We don't like when they brag. We think they're, they're cocky. It doesn't, it doesn't come off well. And yet, if you have someone else brag on your behalf, then that person looks great. You look great. Like everybody gets the credit. So this is sort of like a hack, a way around the stereotype and the penalty related with women bragging. So similarly in this situation, like there were two women there. So if one of them was able to interject and be like, hey, you know, this relates a lot to what Jess had to say, Mm -hmm. you know, they may still talk right over her, but it's worth trying. And even... There was a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago about the women of the White House and how in the Obama administration, they used a term called amplification, where they would invite each other to meetings so that there were more women in the room. They would do all of these things. They would interject on each other's behalf. They would nod and agree when they liked someone's opinion so that there were a force of women supporting each other. And to me, that just was representative of you know, if even the most powerful women in the most powerful office in our country are having to do this stuff, then like we are all part of the same fight. And it's depressing that they have to do it, but they're making a difference. They're talking about it. And I think that you're right. If it leads, it's a, it's a tough fight now, but ideally we're all working towards a greater goal where it won't be such a tough fight down the road. Exactly. And on the topic of bragging, which is something that also comes up in the book that women and myself included, I'm totally guilty of not wanting to take credit. You know, someone says, great job. And I immediately say, oh, well, it wasn't me. It was this. Or you could do it, too. It's just the software. Or saying sorry as often as I breathe, basically. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, pretty much when you answered the phone, I could have said, oh, sorry for me, you know, sorry for making you up early. Sorry for interrupting your mm-hmm, day. Mm-hmm. Sorry for thank you so much for being here. I'm so sorry if this interrupts. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, right. I might as well just say sorry. My name is Samantha. Like when I right. meet people and that feeling of I don't deserve to be here. I'm I'm bothering people. And you you list a bunch of famous you call them impost herds. Tina mm-hmm. Fey, Meryl Streep, Jodie Foster, Maya Angelou have all felt this kind of imposter syndrome. So you seem incredibly confident and you wrote this awesome book and I'm wondering how you if you feel like you've overcome that syndrome and how you've stopped basically apologizing for being alive which is how I feel that I do Uh I act sometimes yeah so I haven't (laughs) overcome it and writing the book and promoting the book has actually been a really interesting exercise in learning how to say thank you mm-hmm. because a lot of people are congratulating me and my instinct is to be like, Oh, like it's not that big a deal or, right. Oh, I couldn't have done it without so-and-so. And I catch myself and I have tried to just stop speaking and say thank you and end it there. Like not create a run on sentence after the thank you, right. not keep talking, just thank you and shut up. And you know, with a lot of this stuff, it's like, suddenly I'm supposed to be an expert, but I, I refer to the things in the book. Mm -hmm. I still have to practice doing this. And I think with a lot of these things, it's like muscles, they're skills. You develop them. You have to work them out. You have to keep doing them. You have to practice doing them. And it's helpful if you have other people doing them with you so you can remind each other. I mean, the sorry thing, I still completely do that all the time. And I was on stage last night doing a talk, talking about the sorry thing. And then interrupted the speaker, the moderator, or something happened. And then I apologized while talking about the apology (laughs) issue. Um, And so I'm certainly not perfect. And I think that all of us, if, you know, if Michelle Obama, if Tina Fey, if Maya Angelou, all of these women who are quote unquote famous imposters talk about feeling like frauds at one point or another, then certainly like who the rest of us are going to feel like frauds, right? Like these are the most amazing women out there and they're hugely inspirational. So I think that, you know, not feeling like we need to be perfect. Like a lot of this stuff takes work and we're going to continue to mess up, but we're going to correct the problem and it can be as easy as that. And we can help each other to do it. And I feel I mean, you know what I feel like is one of the other things in your book that we're not supposed to say. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Okay. I would guess that this imposter syndrome plays into the negotiation issue that comes up when it comes to women in that when you ask for a raise or when you're starting a new job and you give a starting salary, you lowball, women often lowball, whereas men, a friend of mine, again, a friend of mine emailed me that she and a coworker went for the same job and she recently found out that he was making $10,000 more than her and it was mm-hmm. simply because when she said what she would like as her starting salary, she just went with, you know, pretty close to what she was already making. And he gave $10,000 more because he felt that he deserved that. And she didn't want to ask for too much because she thought, you know, she was scared to ask for more than right. she deserved. So right. I imagine that that imposter syndrome plays into those negotiation mm-hmm. disparities. Yeah, you know, this stuff is so deeply rooted and deeply ingrained. Women feel lucky to have jobs. We feel lucky to be in the workplace. We don't want to speak up too much because we're supposed to be ladylike and nice and nurturing and kind. And there are all these deep-rooted expectations about men that 
lead us to believe that it's okay if they ask for a lot of money. That's what they're supposed to do. That's just simply being a leader. And so these are things that are hard to even pinpoint, but I think they cause us to feel unworthy and or so lucky to even be getting the job offer that we're going to take whatever is offered to us, the first mm-hmm. thing offered. And and the studies the studies show that this is true. You know, in job applications, a man will apply for a job if he meets 60% of the requirements, but a woman will not apply for the job unless she meets all 100% of the requirements. So That's basically so like he's bluffing and she's like, Oh, I have to, you know, I, I need to meet every single last one bulleted out on this job posting. And I think that that kind of feeling exists through all of this stuff. It exists in negotiations. It exists in speaking up. And so it can be as simple as knowing that that exists so that we have it in mind when we go into a negotiation. You know, I think that talking about salary is very important. And for a long time, we didn't talk about it. It was, you know, this was a man's turf and it was considered unladylike to talk about money. But I had a similar situation when I was working at Newsweek where a male colleague who was a friend of mine at the same level as I was, I found out he was making $10,000 more. And I found out because we talked about our salaries and he told me. And, it, it, you know, it wasn't volatile in any way. It was a good conversation. And in fact, when he realized I was making less, he encouraged me to ask for more. But having that knowledge of knowing that he there was this tangible gap in what we were making allowed me to feel more confident going in and asking for more. So there's so many things here. I think talking about salaries is very important. I think knowing that the idea of imposter syndrome, which essentially just is a feeling that you don't deserve to be there or you don't deserve the money or you shouldn't have the title that you do. And it's more common in women and the LGBT community and people of color. And the reason is because these are the people who have the pressure of accomplishing firsts. Mm -hmm. You know, women weren't traditionally in the workplace. So when we're there, we think we don't deserve to be there. So all of these things, they can be overcome with simple things that you can do on a daily basis, but it's not like you suddenly, you know, find some trick and you never feel it again. Like I continue to face this and I continue to feel it. and, And I, would argue that probably those people listed in the book, even the the famous people continue to experience it too. So my best advice, I think, is to just continue practicing and also knowing that you're not alone. Like to me, that has been so, so crucial, knowing that other people experience this and knowing that it's a real thing. Like imposter syndrome is a psychological theory and it's a real thing that people have studied. It's not just in my head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so I can, you know, go into things knowing that this is a thing I need to overcome. It's not just me. Absolutely. And that's why I think I encourage people to read your book and B, to just talk about this episode, the book, because the conversations that your book has opened up between me and my friends have totally changed. I mean, it's gotten me. Now we all know each other's salaries and now we kind of know what's going on. And then obviously we could talk about this for hours, but I want to talk about one more thing before I let you go, which is rooming sexism. We've covered that, but looking at sexual harassment. So Mm -hmm. I had a lot of people who talked who mentioned that, you know, oh, they heard that they were talking about female account leads saying, you know, she wasn't a great point person, but boy, she was hot or saying that, you know, even pretty girls like you could learn this, how to do this software. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of my 
one person emailed me and just kind of detailed that she started right after college working for an office primarily with men. And she, one person on her team, quickly appointed himself her mentor and kind of began to manipulate her. So he took her under his wing. He became her self-appointed keeper, spoke on her behalf, edited her work without authority, was patronizing Um, manipulated situations so they were, quote, hanging out alone together, kind of attempted to keep track of her whereabouts for her birthday and for holidays, bought her extravagant gifts. Mm -hmm. And she brought it to leadership in her office and tried to say, you know, bring up that that she was super uncomfortable. She was really upset. And they said, you know, you're going to encounter this in almost any workplace you find. So you might just want to put up with it and and you know keep working up the ladder. So given that that is the worst response in the whole entire world, I'm right. wondering if you can offer some resources for women that are feeling harassed at work if they find that going to their leaders, I mean her solution was she le- she quit her job and she didn't have another job okay. lined up but she mm-hmm. was like get me the hell out of here. So yeah. Yeah. You know, you have so many wonderful resources listed in your book and your book is a great resource, but what, what can women do? Where can they turn when they're feeling really manipulated in a workplace? I would have gone crazy. I would have gone crazy. And I had no idea. And I said to her, I was like, next time, just call, you know, call me and tell me what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many things here. Like the issue of sexual harassment is not subtle. Like it's very overt, but in some of these scenarios, it can feel subtle. And probably as she was describing this, she was thinking to herself, does this HR person even believe me? And I think that so often we don't believe women in these situations, but I do truly believe that's changing. Like with, with the stuff that's happening at Fox news, even with Bill Cosby, like women's voices are being heard Mm -hmm. and we are suddenly realizing like, oh shit, we've been dismissing this for years and years and now it's real. Mm -hmm. So you know, in that scenario, I think what I would have done is probably been like, okay, well then great. You'll be hearing from my lawyer. Yeah. Even if I didn't have one, because that's a completely inappropriate response for an HR person to say. And, you know, she could have filed a complaint with the equal opportunity employment commission. Like that is always an option. Anyone can do that. You can go to eeoc.gov and find out more information. I think that, you know, having the ability to quit, that is I'm so glad she was able to do that, but also a lot of women don't have the luxury or don't have the backup funds to do that. So, you know, in the book, this is something really simple, but I talk about having a fuck off fund. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a term I came up with, but it was a, a fellow writer who came up with it. And it's essentially just a fund for when you can no longer deal. And it's like, you may be in the greatest job in the world right now, but you never know what's going to happen. So putting a little bit of money into this bank account every once in a while, so that if something does happen, you do have a little padding. If you have to just get the fuck out of there because you can't handle it anymore, I think can be beneficial. I also, you know, like you said, you told her you wish that she would have called you talking to other women. Like one person complaining is easy to stifle, but if there is an army of women complaining or an army of women who have your back on that, like this is a problem that HR needs to deal with. And so even if they're not experiencing the same thing from the same person, but they believe you and they can back you up, I think that that can be huge. And probably if it's happening to you, it's happening to other women is the reality. Some of this stuff 
like in that situation specifically, it's like, it's so tough because he's not grabbing your ass. He's not like, there's nothing. Right. You could, you can look at it and say, well, what, what are you complaining about? He's getting you birthday presents. Right. It's like, exactly. well, it makes me uncomfortable. So that's what I'm complaining about. And I think that's the thing. Like, trust your gut. I think it's so easy to be like, well, it, like, am I, it, you know, like, did I ask for a birthday present? Did I like, am I bringing this behavior on? Like, is it like, there's so many ways you can turn inward and self doubt, but like, trust your gut. If you feel uncomfortable, probably something inappropriate is happening. Even if it's like some real psychological twisted, um, mental game that is hard to describe to an HR person, but like trust yourself and talk to other women and see if they experience it too. And a lot of this stuff is culture. Like this is the culture of companies. And if there is a culture at your workplace that thinks that that is an okay way for somebody to behave, then probably it's not a good workplace for you to be in. So if there's some way you can get out of it, do it. And I think, like I said before, in the, in, you know, if you can't afford to leave your work, coming up with this fight club, getting a support system of women who will advocate for you in meetings and head to HR for you and will at least give you a place to talk about it while you look for another job is great, which is why I love Feminist Fight Club and the community you've created so much. And I hope that people pick up this book, which is now available wherever. And as the book says on the cover, the book is 21% more expensive for men, (laughs) which I love, (laughs) which is my favorite thing. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel awesome. And I hope other people will feel really empowered listening to you and hearing about all of your wonderful strategies for dealing with sexism in the workplace. And best of luck. And I know you're really busy with press. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Jessica Bennett, author of Feminist Fight Club, which is available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Samzabel and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einkel, and our producer, Kristen Meinzer. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to go into iTunes and review it and rate it and subscribe to it because the more people that rate the show, the easier it is for the show to be found. I'm Sam Zabel, and I'll see you next time. Bye.